North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome to another episode of the Impossible State Podcast. This is Victor Cha. I'm uh, standing in as the host for the Impossible State Podcast rather than as one of the guests for Andrew Schwartz, our Senior Vice President for Communications. On the Impossible State Podcast today, we have two of our old favorites, Sumi Terry, a senior fellow at CSIS in the Korea Chair, and Mike Green, a Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at CSIS professor and director of Asian studies at Georgetown. So it's great to have you both on the podcast. I thought we'd start today by talking about the the two plus two that just finished last week. Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin, as their first trips overseas, traveled to Japan and Korea. There were follow-on stops after that, but of course, the first two stops were uh, Japan and Korea in what is known in diplomatic speak as a two plus two, where the senior uh, statesperson and the senior defense person go and meet with their counterparts in the two countries. All of us who worked on the NSC staff know very well these things are about as easy to schedule as it is to take a trip to the moon as a civilian. It is very, very difficult to put together these things, so it's an important sign by the administration of how serious they are about the alliances in Asia and not only making this the first stop for both of the principles, but uh, doing it in the format of a two plus two. So um, starting with Japan, which arguably was the easier of the two stops uh, for Blinken and Austin, I thought first go to Mike and sort of ask, what was your takeaway from the Japan stop? Did it all go as planned? And how do you see the Biden administration and their policy on Japan? Well, the trip was significant, as you said, because two plus twos are hard to schedule in the best of times. But to make it the first trip out of the gate for both the Secretary of State and Defense and to announce that same week or let it be known that Prime Minister Suga of Japan would be the first in-person visitor to the White House. And with the Quad Summit happening with the U.S., Japan, Australia and India with major deliverables promising a billion uh, doses of vaccine to South and Southeast Asia, a major coordination effort on rare earth metals and, of course, the maritime cooperation the four countries have always done. This is just a major surge of diplomacy and security cooperation in Asia, and it all centers on Japan, really. And it very much reflects the strategy Prime Minister um, Abe had um, for the region, the free and open Indo-Pacific, emphasizing the Quad, maritime alignment, and a relief for the Japanese who weren't sure if the Biden administration would somehow be a replay of the Obama administration. They liked aspects of the Obama administration, but at times the Obama administration was very cozy with Beijing's ideas for a bipolar condominium and new model great power relations and so forth. So they were a bit anxious 
but will be, I think, very, very satisfied that generally they agree on almost everything in our strategic approach to the region and to China. There, there will be a couple things they probably had a little friction over. Korea, for example. Uh, Suga doesn't want to be told what to do on Korea, but it's very, very important for the Biden administration to see a better Korea-Japan relationship. You know, the U.S. has announced a major global posture review, so they probably had some hushed discussions about what this means for the U.S. presence in Okinawa. And, you know, we have little kerfuffles with Japan. Japan pulled out of Aegis Ashore. Then they decided that they needed to do it, so they put it back on ships. So now it's called Aegis Ashore Afloat. So we, we have little disagreements with Japan over defense procurement. But in general, the strategy hinges on Japan and they showed that loud and clear in the stop. But the Korea piece is absolutely critical and maybe the hardest part for the Japanese to hear. And then that takes us to Korea. So Sue, you know, Blinken and Austin, they had a good trip to Korea, nice pictures, good words, nice statement. So the text of the visit seemed to go quite well. But what about the subtext? You know, what are the sort of things that might have been more difficult conversations in private that was omitted from sort of the, the points that were made in the written documents? And, uh, and overall, how do you sort of see the two governments, the Biden and the Moon government, Moon in his last year in office and Biden at the beginning, interacting over uh, uh, the various issues in the, in the alliance? I do think the trip overall was very successful. So I do want to sort of, you know, I, I agree with Mike completely. And I think optics, Overall, optics was very good. A first high-level trip by U.S. Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, you know, visiting Asia, two allies, Japan and Korea, as their first overseas trip. Very, very important. I think it shows that the Biden administration means it when they say they want to re-engage with the region, the key allies at the highest level, right kind of signaling that alliances are critical. But as you mentioned, there is a subtext. And I think a couple of things stand out. I'm sure our conversation with South Korea involving China. And then, you know, I want to talk a little bit about North Korea because there was this kind of silly gobei going back and forth over even just a definition on denuclearization, right? With the U.S. team talking about denuclearization of North Korea. And then, you know, Jung Yong, South Korean foreign minister coming in with, well, actually, you know, denuclearization of the Korean peninsula is the better phrase. So that kind of signaled there is this continuing tension over North Korea policy. We've expected this with the Moon Jae-in administration with only a year left, that they're going to get increasingly more aggressive or they are more desperate about trying to make some sort of progress with North Korea. So I think that's going to be a continuing source of tension between us. I mean, you know, their overall optics is a good thing. We had some major accomplishments like special measures agreement deal getting concluded. I was, it was great to see the pictures of their signing right after much going back and forth on this, on the special measures agreement. We finally came to an agreement, but no doubt North Korea policy is going to be a source of contention along with just overall China issue in terms of where South Korea stands in U.S.-China conflict. Thanks, Sue. Before we get to North Korea, I mean, it was definitely good to see the SMA signed. I mean, if you think about it, they went for years, right, without an agreement and with people being furloughed, you know, all sorts of bad stuff happening. Yeah, no, it's, it's a multi-year deal. And I think that was very, very important just because you don't want to go through this again. It's a multi-year agreement. And I, I don't know if you caught the, what the exact figure was, but it, it was more than, South Koreans gave him more than what they agreed to, 
March of last year when the negotiators agreed to basically South Korea's contribution increasing by 13% to 1.2 billion is what we agreed to last year. But of course, it was President Trump who sort of vetoed it last minute saying absolutely not. But I think South Koreans gave more than what, what they agreed to last year. So there is a resolution to that. I'm very glad to see it. It's multi-year agreement, very important in terms of U.S. rock alliance moving forward. So we don't have to worry about that anymore. But again, I think there's a continuing tension on North Korea. And that was evident by just even that little disagreement over how to phrase denuclearization. Also, the other thing was that I was surprised to see mention of OPCON transition in the document because, you know, we only have a year left, right? Or less than a year left in the Moon government. And I know they want to do it soon, but you know, my sense is that they're not ready to do OPCON transition yet. I don't know how, Sue or, or Mike, how, how you feel about that. I saw the OPCON transition reference as a little bit of a nod to the base by the Blue House, but all indications are they know they're not going to get it done before Moon Jae-in leaves office. So I actually read that as on balance, you know, a little better than might have been expected. Kind of like, yeah, we wanted OPCON transfer before we left office, but dot, dot, dot. I think they know it's not realistic. And that's good because that could have been a real source of friction and a real, frankly, bad signal to be sending to North Korea right now or China. I also thought the tone set by Defense Minister Sun, in particular on Japan was a little more positive than in the past and kind of encouraging. He did say that defense cooperation is really important. He just said it's politically hard. In a way, he was throwing it back at the foreign ministry to please solve this problem so the defense ministers in both countries can do their job. So I thought the tone was positive. It, you know, There's no evidence that the underlying problem, which from the Japanese perspective are these court cases and the Korean perspective is that Japan needs to do more. There's no indication that'll be solved, but the tone was better. But I'm with Sue. I think the difference in rhetoric between denuclearization of North Korea and denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is massive. That is, that's not just a little bit of playing with words. It's huge. The North Korean version, which Trump foolishly agreed to, is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which I know from my time in the negotiations with the North Koreans and from, you know, reading Pyongyang's interpretation means, you know, end of the U.S. extended deterrence and all kinds of things. It doesn't, in other words, it's not a commitment at all to denuclearizing. And the fact that the Blue House is insisting, as President Trump did, that we keep that, language on our side, to me, they're basically just putting lipstick on a pig. They're basically pretending there's an agreement when the Biden administration is saying, no, there was no agreement. North Korea is not doing anything to denuclearize. And that is more than just one or two different words in a clause. That's a gaping chasm between the U.S. and Seoul right now, at least in how we're describing North Korea's commitment, which does not augur well for close coordination on North Korea diplomacy. On deterrence and defense, yes, I think we're in good shape. On diplomacy, I suspect there's a pretty big gap. Yeah, I agree. Also, on our transfer, it's basically we're keeping what it is, right? We're going to coordinate a condition-based approach to operational control. It doesn't have a target date. It focuses on satisfying the necessary readiness requirements. Uh, and threat conditions for both sides to feel comfortable with the transfer. So I think that's good. It just, it, I, I agree with Mike. It's just kind of like, you know, it's for domestic purposes. And I think it's, uh, we're okay in that space. North Korea, yeah. I mean, I'm, and for Jong Yong to come out and say they actually agree with the North Korean definition when they know what North Korea means by that. They mean it has implications for our U.S. troops' presence in South Korea when North Koreans say denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. They're talking about nuclear umbrella we have over South Korea. 
And South Koreans know that when North Koreans use denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, what they mean by that. So I, I thought that was not helpful, to be honest. And it does signal a um, potential problem for the remainder of the Moon administration, at least when it comes to North Korea policy. So maybe we can just dig down a little bit on this. The terms the North Koreans always use are hostile policy, right? Denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, action for action. For our listeners, what do these terms mean and why do we not like them from the, from the U.S. side? You know, I first encountered these in a serious way in negotiations, you know, 18, 19, 20 years ago in, in Pyongyang and in the Six-Party Talks, as did you in the Six-Party Talks, Victor and Sue. So when they talk about our hostile policy or U.S. obligations under denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, the list changes a little bit every time, but it almost always includes our extended nuclear deterrent, our nuclear umbrella, that's part of our hostile policy and a requirement for denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, and related to that, the U.S. military presence. But the hostile policy also includes sanctions against North Korea and also our unwillingness to get South Korea and Japan to provide economic aid and criticism of the regime's human rights record or political system. It's a very long list. It changes all the time. From my perspective, it's not that the North Koreans are going to trick us into pulling off the Korean Peninsula or ending our nuclear deterrent. It's just a signal that they have a long list of demands we have to do before they will denuclearize, and therefore it indicates they're not serious. And that's why I think it's a problem that the Secretary of State and the Foreign Minister are each using different versions. The Korean Foreign Minister is using the North Korean version, although in his defense, that's what President Trump used. And Tony Blinken is using a much more accurate description of what we need, which is denuclearization of North Korea. The thing that always struck me about the term hostile policy was that the North Koreans would always put that out as sort of their condition for denuclearization or even for coming back to talks when the U.S. ends its hostile policy. But they never actually ever define what hostile policy is. And we end up, we, meaning the United States and South Korea and others, end up looking for ways to define it. So we say it's lifting sanctions, or we even provided a, a negative security assurance, right, in the six-party talks, right, when we said the United States will not attack North Korea with nuclear or conventional weapons. The North Koreans never have had to define it themselves. Well, they defined it for us in Pyongyang in October 2002. They sat us through an hour-long description of our hostile policy. It was pretty detailed. They told us what it was, and they told us that President Bush had to personally meet with Kim Jong-il to promise he'd end all the aspects of the hostile policy. That said, that was one negotiation. It varies and it changes. It's a shape-shifter. The North Koreans don't want an itemized list precisely because we bend over backwards trying to figure out what it is. They can change the price. They can close a deal and then block it by saying, you forgot this part of the hostile policy. It's meant to be amorphous. But they did once list for us, at least in October 2002, what they considered at the time the hostile policy. And they basically were throwing it at, at us as a very high barrier for, uh, for talks to raise the price on us after we discovered the uranium enrichment. But it shifts and it changes. That's their whole strategy. It is not North Korea ending nuclear weapons pursuant to the six-party agreements or the North-South denuclearization agreements in the 90s. It's not that. It's a long list of stuff that was never in those that they hold up as, you know, sort of endless barriers to them taking steps to denuclearize. So to Sue, then, two, two questions. The first is, can we ever get back? I mean, so now we've had both the Singapore statement and the Moon government advocating this denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And of course, the North Koreans prefer it that way. Can we ever get back to denuclearization of North Korea? 
And then second is, you know, like you said, the South Korean government knows the difference between these things, and yet they continue to advocate what the North Korean side says, knowing it's not good for their own security, right? If, 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 they try, if these sorts of conditions for denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, as defined by the North Koreans, were fulfilled. So is it that they just don't take the North Korean word seriously? I mean, what is behind this if they know that it's not good for them? Well, first, I don't know if they know that if it's not good for them. I think they truly believe this is the way forward. You know, they're a bunch of, they're so into engagement. I don't know if they recognize that. But I do think that it's going to be very hard to get back to denuclearization of North Korea. Uh, just because, look at this past week. Mike talked about them raising barriers, and that's what they mean. I think he, it's perfect what he says, shape-shifting with this hostile policy, North Koreans just raised more barriers in the past week, right? We saw, you know, Kim Yo-jong's statement coming out, warning South Korea, warning North Korea, warning about U.S.-South Korean military exercises. We know this is an excuse. They were just releasing that statement at the tail end of those exercises, just as Blinken and, uh, you know, the team was arriving in South Korea. They, it was perfectly timed. They also released new anti- Alliance propaganda poster demanding that South Korea give up military partnership with Washington. So they've just been busy raising more and more barriers. So I think it's going to be very difficult. And you heard just the report about the Biden administration reaching out to the North Koreans and trying to have a back-channel communication for the whole past month, and North Koreans have been basically ignoring them. And I think this is North Koreans' way of saying, look, we're either raising more barriers or raising the bar. Denuclearization of North Korea is going to be out of the question. If you ever want to come back and talk with us and engage with us again, it's going to be about arms control, if anything. And, and you know, it's Washington has to give up significantly a lot more before we can even sit down with North Koreans to have a conversation. So I think the pressure is on us. The North Koreans are really playing hardball, and we just saw this in the past week. It always reminds me of, of a, a high school football game, and whenever we have an election or we get distracted, we blow the whistle, and it's halftime, and the American team goes back to the locker room, and the football's on the 50-yard line, but the Korean team stays on the field, and the North Korean team moves the football down to our 20-yard line, and when we come back, we say, hey, that's not fair, and they say, hey, look where the ball is. It's on your 20-yard line. That's where we're playing or, or nothing. And it's like, we, it, I don't know, we do it again and again. It does not help that Seoul is kind of aiding and abetting that. On the other hand, I think the Blue House really is looking for this end of war declaration. They really want a legacy accomplishment. And in a way, I don't blame them because, as you'll remember better than I do, the, the bloody nose, shock and awe, rocket man threats of 2017-18, Moon Jae-in skillfully put Trump in a different place in negotiation. And he, in some ways, may have saved his country, actually. So in some ways, I don't blame the the Moon government for wanting to keep going on this diplomacy with North Korea because of what almost happened in 2017-18. The problem is Joe Biden's not going to attack North Korea, and the Biden administration is looking for a pragmatic way for the U.S. and Korea and Japan and others to cooperate. And this is a pretty fundamental starting question about what the North Koreans had actually agreed to. So I think we'll have difficulty over the rest of the Moon administration really getting tight on our coordination on the diplomacy. The problem is I don't think North Korea is going to be just satisfied with peace declaration because in the Hanoi summit, the U.S. side was prepared to put peace declaration on the table for discussion. We are ready for that. We are also willing to 
exchange liaison officers. It's North Koreans who wanted significant sanctions relief. And I think right now that's what they're also still aiming for. So I think it's, the bar is even higher than just giving a peace declaration. I, I think North Koreans want more than that. Yeah, in a way then, I guess the Blue House is doing a really bad job guessing what Biden wants and a really bad job guessing what Kim Jong-un wants too. So before we leave the topic of North Korea, let me ask you two things. The first is uh, last week there were these, and you referred to it already, so these press reports of sort of U.S. efforts to reach out to North Korea that have, have gone unanswered. So I guess, you know, the question there is, what's that all about? What's the motive behind it? And then also, what's the motive about leaking it to the press? That's the first. And then the second is, both of you take out your crystal balls. What do you think is going to happen going forward? I mean, do you think that with U.S. exercises going on and the, all these very cryptic yet somewhat threatening words by Che Sun-hee and Kim Yo-jong that we might see some sort of North Korean action, uh, particularly now that Blinken and uh, Austin are, are out, of the, uh, out of the region? So the Biden administration reached out to North Koreans, apparently, you know, to attempt a back-channel dialogue for about a month, since at least February. And, you know, for the listeners, there are several channels of communication when it comes to North Korea. There's one called New York Channel that you uh, might have heard about. And there's a covert channel through intelligence agencies. And there's various open source that has reported on this covert channel, right? So New York Channel goes through the North Korean diplomats at the United Nations, so through the foreign ministry. And, you know, sometimes North Koreans close those down for different reasons. And then there is a secret channel between CIA and North Korean intel folks. And there's a different reasons for different times why those different channels are used. And for this inter-channel, you know, Mike and Victor, you guys remember the Joe Ditrani, former North Korea mission manager, Michael Morel days. They've used that channel often. Clapper too, right? When Clapper went. Clapper went to North Korea in 2014 to, to obtain release of two detained U.S. citizens using that channel. And then he was dormant for a number of years. And, and then Mike Pompeo, who was director of CIA, revived it. And that channel, he used that channel to set up the Singapore summit. And so what is, Victor, you mentioned, it's interesting that the Biden administration leaked this news that they've been trying to reach out to North Koreans. So the question is, why did they do that? Because they could just, if they want to really reach out to North Koreans, they could also make a public statement. So I don't know. I welcome other people's working theory on this. I think mine is that the Biden administration wants to placate concerns that the U.S. has just been sitting around and doing nothing when it comes to North Korea, that we're not prioritizing North Korea. That's one explanation. We want to buy some time because we know that, as you know, this policy review takes time to conclude. So North Korea policy review right now is ongoing. It's not going to be concluded till next month. So we don't want North Koreans to revert to provocation. And I don't know, there's a different theories as to why there was this leak. And, you know, I have to say from intelligence, former intelligence officers perspective, leaks always come from policymakers, never intelligence community, I want to say. Your second question about what's going to happen you know, I think North Koreans are setting it up right now with these uh, threats, threatening statements, this rhetorically setting it up. And I do think that maybe, maybe they will wait till the end of the policy review to see where the Biden administration is going. But my money is on the, you know, on the, you know, what, what we expect all along for North Korea to revert to a camp campaign of testing and provocations. This is what they know how to do to dial up pressure. All right. Thanks, Mike. 
So, yeah, so I think Sue's probably right that the leak probably was on the policy side, and it probably was meant to show that they are doing something to try to reach out to the North Koreans. And frankly, because they're under pressure from South Korea a little bit to appoint a senior, uh, an envoy for North Korea, but also because they probably do worry about what Sue said with her crystal ball, that North Korea is going to go back to a pattern of provocations, and then they will be able to to say, well, look, we were trying to reach out to them. So that makes a lot of sense to me. These guys in the Biden administration believe in dialogue. It's not like, you know, at times, Victor, actually before you were in the Bush administration early on, there was a part of the Bush administration that thought dialogue in itself was bad. So we had to fight to get it started early on. That's not where the Biden folks are coming from. They think dialogue basically is good. However, I think they're also a bit slow having a more formal dialogue for a couple of reasons. One is they don't really believe North Korea is serious. That's a real deterrent. Second, I don't think anybody senior wants to own North Korea policy, precisely because they don't think it's going to go well. You know, people on the outside, Democrats who might get appointed as a special envoy are probably holding out for other jobs. And people on the inside who might take that on are really, really busy. The two plus twos, the quad, that took an enormous amount of work from the senior officials, especially those working on Asia. So, you know, I... I, I don't think that anybody is jumping to own the North Korea policy issue or policy problem, which is probably slowing it down. And to the extent they're going to use their political capital for negotiating with difficult states, they're going to use it on Iran and JCPOA and on Russia with New START, because there you have some important, you know, gains you might make, or at least uh, you can reverse uh, problems we've had. Uh, Crystal Ball, I think we're looking probably at missile tests. I would, I would guess an escalating series of missile tests heading towards an ICBM, perhaps even demonstrating re-entry vehicle capabilities. The reason, uh, as some of your studies have shown, Victor, that missile tests are better provocations for North Korea, it has to do with what they want to test. But one reason it's better for them diplomatically is nuclear tests cause enormous political backlash from the Chinese people. They hate the nuclear tests. They can feel them in parts of China and the South Korean people. Missile tests, they drive a wedge between the U.S. and China. And to some extent, uh, you know, the South Korean response tends to be less strong than the Japanese and American responses to missile tests. So I would guess missile, not nuclear, maybe ICBM, maybe uh, demonstrating reentry vehicle capability at the most extreme end. Nuclear, I think, is less likely. But yeah, it seems to be heading that way. That's certainly a safe guess based on history. So if that's what they do, I mean, let's play this out. And if that's what happens, some sort of missile testing campaign uh, possibly actually leading to an ICBM demonstration. What does that do to the Biden administration's policy review? They'll have to have another policy review. <laughs> um, I don't think they're going to rush to negotiate at a higher level the way the Clinton administration did, for example, or the way that um, Trump did. You know, uh, I think they will redouble their efforts to strengthen US, Japan, Korea, deterrence, sanctions, and that's where they'll, they'll go with it. And I'm not predicting this, by the way, because as you guys know well, North Korea has a lot of problems right now with COVID and the economy. It may be that they that they do keep putting this off and avoiding escalation. It's not a it's not a, a certainty, um, but if they do it, I think the Biden administration's instincts are going to be to double down on deterrence, pressure, and sanctions. And then you know, I, I just don't see Joe Biden or the Secretary of State investing their reputations in a negotiation with North Korea that they don't think is going anywhere. And they'll try to set the stage for something that can be done at a 
professional level, if you will, at the level of an envoy or a deputy secretary, the kind, kind of things T. Began tried but couldn't ultimately do. So, Sue, if, if that's the case, so, you know, Titan, U.S., Japan, Korea, trilateral, right? I mean, focus on missile defense, extended deterrence, these sorts of things. What's the play with China then? If we're in this sort of, if we're playing this out, what's the Biden administration's play with China? They just had these meetings in Alaska, right? I mean, what's the phone call to China look like? Well, it's really hard with China because we've already seen reporting that China, in terms of implementation of sanctions, they have really relaxed implementation of sanctions. The one time we got China to do more was in the fall of 2017, but we're not seeing that anymore. And so since the summit and diplomacy began, already China is not doing that. So I don't know what kind of cards we really have to play with China to pressure the Kim regime. So I, I, I don't know what we can do with China. My, my question, though, then is everything with what everything just Mike said, does it then give reason for North Korea to wait a bit in terms of returning to a major provocation? Because they, they already know that the Biden administration, as Mike played out, it just means it's more sanctions and tightening and squeezing North Korea. And they've, they've done that before. So does that then give them an incentive to wait out a bit and also not irritate China? Because right now, you know, China-North Korea relationship is okay. The only reason it's, it's, it's trade flow and all of that has shut down is because of COVID and these measures that North Koreans took to close the border. I think if you look at it from Pyongyang's perspective, and assuming, as we all are, they have no intention to give up nuclear weapons and they want to continue building their missile capabilities, from their perspective, the window may be the next year, actually. Because I think they would be right in assuming U.S.-China relations are going to get worse before they get better. So, you know, if you are going to drive a wedge between the U.S. and China, and if you are hoping not to have Security Council sanctions or China put pressure on you, in a way, now's the time to do it because U.S.-China relations are really bad after that Alaska meeting. It's clear the Biden administration is, is going to stand firm against a, a Beijing rather than compromise early. Meanwhile, South Korea-Japan relations are not moving forward, and the U.S. and ROK are in different places on North Korea diplomatic strategy, and the Russia-U.S. relationship is terrible. So the outside forces are at maximum entropy, and if that's the main calculation, now's the time for North Korea to act. What's harder for us to judge is what's going on inside North Korea and how much COVID and the economic, you know, uh, stagnation, and even regime control, we just don't know how much that might cause Kim Jong-un to wait because he can't afford the risk of blowback. That part's harder to judge, but the external dynamics for North Korea actually are probably optimal for the next six months to a year. But with Moon Jae-in in place, U.S.-China friction, Japan-Korea relations bad, U.S.-Russia relations bad. Well, there certainly are a lot of questions that are left unanswered. And this is why it's always very difficult to predict what the impossible state's going to do next. But we do have some predictions coming from Sue and Mike, and perhaps we can get together in a couple of weeks again and take stock then of where we are. Maybe not much will have changed, but maybe a lot will have changed by the time we come together again. So with that, thank you to all our listeners on The Impossible State. Uh, This is Victor Cha, and we will see you again on the next episode. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. 
If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.